Ah, mmm. The first taste of rare bourbon you finally got your hands on. That's nice. At Caskers.com, we make this experience easy. Caskers is a one-stop spirit curator with an impressive selection of exclusive sought-after rare and household names in the realm of premium spirits and champagne. Discover the top flavors of the year now by going to Caskers.com and using code WELCOME10 for $10 off your first purchase. Get $10 off your first purchase with code WELCOME10 at Caskers.com. Ah, mmm. The first taste of rare bourbon you finally got your hands on. That's nice. At Caskers.com, we make this experience easy. Caskers is a one-stop spirit curator with an impressive selection of exclusive sought-after rare and household names in the realm of premium spirits and champagne. Discover the top flavors of the year now by going to Caskers.com and using code WELCOME10 for $10 off your first purchase. Get $10 off your first purchase with code WELCOME10 at Caskers.com. Let me be explicit. Right now, in this podcast, there's some explicit language. It's Monday, July 23rd, 2018. From Slate, it's The Gist. I'm Mike Pesca. And the Aspen Security Forum officially ended over the weekend. You know the Aspen Security Forum. It's where actual administration officials like Kirsten Nielsen and Dan Coates answer questions. We get to know them a little bit. We get to see the real Dan Coates, Director of National Intelligence, in real time get briefed. We have some breaking news. The White House has announced on Twitter that Vladimir Putin is coming to the White House in the fall. Say that again. (laughs) (laughs) You... Vladimir Putin coming to the... Did I hear you? Yeah, yeah. Okay. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) That's going to be special. (laughs) Coates said of that response, it was awkward and in no way meant to be disrespectful to the president. So just seeing the reaction itself winds up being informative to us as citizens. And then getting to hear his clarification, sorry to be disrespectful, that's also pretty informative, isn't it? There are so many stories, so much news, worthwhile news, out of the Aspen Security Forum. You gather these officials tasked with safety, you gather them in cool mountain altitudes, and you pump them for information, and you get that information. And I like that. But it seems like foreign policy security, and economics. Those are the only policy areas that benefit from this sort of treatment. Very plugged in, important people gathering together in places like Aspen or Davos. And then we as the public get to benefit from the relaxed nature and openness of the conversation. But these aren't the only policy areas where we need this from. There are many, many cabinet positions and just functions of government that could desperately use an Aspen-type festival. So that's why I am proposing the first ever Housing and Urban Development, or HUDFest 2018, to take place in Sonoma. In between winery tours, urban developers will discuss vacancy rates and homelessness. And you know, if we really want to leave no child behind, we need to discuss education policy in Monaco. Michelle Rhee will show up. Eva Moskowitz will show up. They're the important people, right? And you know what? Let's talk prisons and parole out in the Hamptons. We don't even have to go as far as East Hampton. Wayne Scott. Quag. 
I think we can have some fruitful discussions about over incarceration in quag. And finally, and this is this is going to be a tough one, but I have what I think might be the hardest government responsibility. And it fell upon me to pair it with the perfect geographic solution. So I'm talking about child services, the Department of Child Services in any municipality. It is just a thankless task. The only time the Department of Child Services makes news is when something goes wrong. And when something goes wrong there, it goes tragically wrong. And of course, there's not a lot of money sloshing around in the field of child services. So what can we do Versailles, the Versailles Child Protective Services Conference. Nine days, so we get two full weekends there. We discuss the issues of child services. I think we could make some headway in the sculpted gardens of the Sun King. What do we have to lose once you've already blown a hole in the faux gras budget? Come on. Like the Aspen crowd, you are public servants. You want to make a difference. That's why I suggest you enroll now. In the Versailles Child Protective Services Conference 2019, nothing says a revolution in leadership like Versailles 2019. On the show today, I spiel about when our president reaches out to foreign leaders, whether by rolling over and showing his belly or just going all caps, it might even be more shocking than we realize. But first, Scott Dozier is a murderer on Nevada's death row. He actually should be dead right now. But the drugs that are to be used in his execution are untested for killing a man. Now, normally, the convicted person would be said to have gotten a stay of execution. But Dozier sees it more like a tease or a denial. He wants to die, as he told Gianna Taboni of Vice Magazine. She is here to talk about a death penalty case like no other. The Defender is a beautiful car, but beauty is, of course, sometimes only skin deep. Not with the Defender. Let's talk about the interior. It's robust, built with integrity. Yes, it's designed iconically, the exterior. That's what compelled me. My, my neighbor Jay says, Mike, you see what's on the block? It's a Defender. And I look down the block, and indeed there is. And me and Jay the neighbor and Michelle, we gather around the Defender. We peer in the window. I have to say... I don't want to make this a too tawdry, but we lust or perhaps we quell. To drive the Defender is to explore with greater confidence. We looked at the cargo capacity, more room for the gear. There's really a wide range of adventures. The Defender family features the two-door Defender 90, the Defender 110, and the Defender 130, which seats up to eight. Push what's possible with a vehicle made to go further. The Defender 110. Learn more at LandRoverUSA.com slash Defender. In the United States, prisoners are executed using a three-drug cocktail. Here's what the three drugs do. One kills you, one paralyzes you, and one sedates you. Now, the problem with that is if the sedative doesn't work, the paralyzing agent does, and so a victim could be tortured. But there's another problem, well, aside from the morality, there's another problem, which is that the sedative or a number of the sedatives that have been used in the past are no longer being manufactured. And in fact, medical agencies no longer want to sign off on execution 
executions. So in the state of Nevada, they got the idea to use fentanyl, yes, fentanyl, the active ingredient in a lot of uh, opioid drugs, to execute a prisoner. Scott Dozier was to have been that prisoner. Vice's Gianna Taboni visited, interviewed Dozier. She's here with me now to talk all about the process and the prisoner. Gianna, how are you? I'm great, Mike. Thanks for having me on. Absolutely. So let's start with, as of we're talking today, on Friday, the 20th of July, a couple days ago, he was supposed to have been killed, but that's not the case. Exactly. He was supposed to be executed on July 11th. Uh, We've been talking to him for the last 10 months, uh, two to three times a week. We sat down with him in person for the first time two days before the scheduled execution. He's a really interesting guy. He's a really complicated guy. Usually when you think of death row inmates, they're, you know, pursuing any appeal they can to prevent this, to postpone it, you know, to hopefully eventually make sure it never happens. Scott Dozier is the opposite. You seem ready to go. What are you going to miss? I'm wholly counting on not missing anything. Like, the one thing I'm expecting from this is to be wholly unconcerned with this plane of existence. So if I'm missing something still, I'm going to be either bummed out or super pissed. Who got the idea that fentanyl would be a suitable sedative? And how do you even test that that could work on a human? So you can't test it, aside from reading the headlines every day. Um, There was a chief medical officer several months ago who, you know, and a director of Nevada Department of Corrections, they were sort of in a state of crisis. It's like, here's this guy who's volunteered to be executed. We literally cannot get our hands on drugs legally that can do it. So fentanyl was one that they were able to buy from uh, a wholesaler, Cardinal Health. These pharmaceutical companies are not selling these drugs to them, so they have yeah. to find these loopholes. Yeah. You know, and I'm sure Cardinal Health doesn't like the brand association. Oh, they, they, they <laughs> the don't like it. The word health is in their name. And more so the drug manufacturer. Yeah. Like everyone from you know Pfizer to Alvagen, who yeah. makes an even more controversial drug, which is in this cocktail, Midazolam, um, they have all said, do not use our drugs for these executions, and they're suing the state as a result. When was the last time someone was executed in Nevada? It's been more than 12 years. Yeah, and so a lot of these states, the 30 states with it on the books, most of them haven't done it in over a decade. Yeah, exactly. And, and now what they're facing is, you know, expiration dates for these drugs. On the drugs, So, yeah. so it's like Arkansas last year. They, I think, executed eight people in 10 days because it's like they had to use these drugs. They weren't sure they were going to get any others. Utah, though— is bringing back the firing squad, excuse me, brought it back in 2015. And one of their representatives, Paul Ray, he's a really interesting guy. He's like, why are we whitewashing this? Mm -hmm. We are killing citizens. We should shoot them. You know, like, let's, let's call it what it is. And since they legalized the firing squad, inmates on death row are literally requesting to be killed by firing squad. They want nothing to do with lethal injection because of all these botched executions. Okay, so let's talk about Dozier himself. What's he in jail for? So he was convicted of murdering uh, two people in drug deals and dismembering them afterward. He maintains his innocence, but, you know, he says it was a legally obtained conviction. But journalists like you have looked into it. It doesn't, there's not too much evidence for his innocence. Listen, there were jury trials, you know, um, toward the end of the interview, I said, I don't hear the remorse of a killer or the outrage of an innocent man, mm-hmm. you know, and he was sitting there saying, it's just a, a too heavy a way to live. I can't just be like dwelling on this 24-7 for more than 10 years. And I was like, but you're not sitting here saying there's no DNA evidence. There's no this, there's no that. You're not asking for people. And so that's a little bit, I, I sort of question that because he's not saying those things. Well, it seems like he's trolling the system and maybe vice viewers, you know, via you. It's a really interesting idea. I mean, like, I think 90% 
he really just doesn't want to live in that cell. He's yeah. like a really smart guy, and he's just sort of like, I, 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 this is not an acceptable way for me to live. I'd rather die. I think there is 10% where he's kind of a punk, and he's like, you know what? F you guys. I'm calling your bluff. Yeah. I don't think you know how to execute me. And I also think that this tactic of his makes his life interesting. Yeah. I mean, it's certainly given him something to do. Okay, so here was an idea I had or a thought I had. We do not just give the penalty phase of justice over to the whims of the convicted. We don't say to them, what would you like your punishment to be? And then they say, can I walk? So what about when the other thing happens? When we say, what would you like your punishment to be? And then he says, kill me. How much credence should we give this guy just based on the fact that he is not a guy that society approves of, but also the fact that, like, what is that principle? We'll listen to you when you say, kill me? If you have an innocent person who's, let's say, dying of a very painful disease in most states in the country right now, if they say, doctor, kill me, yeah, not legal. Right. This guy can do it legally. Right. And I think it's it's one of these loopholes that, you know, we didn't exactly think about until now that we're faced with it. And a lot of people would say, listen, it is worse punishment for that guy to be in prison for life. Why would we give him an out? And it's it's a you know it's an interesting conversation. He even says, "I don't." Dozier says, "I don't believe that states should be able to kill their citizens, but I'm really thankful that it's legal in Nevada." Mm-hmm. So yeah, I don't know. I think it's um, I think for people who have been against the death penalty, this kind of flips the argument on its head because some would argue that it that it's actually more humane to allow this person to make their decision. Yeah, but it's not a physician-assisted suicide. It's, you know, a state penal-assisted suicide. And that's a little bit different. It is different. And, man, I don't envy the position of those people who are injecting the drugs. I think a lot of them have some issues afterward. Um, Physicians won't do it, right? So uh, the sort of biggest anesthesiologist uh, board in the country has said, do not do this. You know, you should not partake in, in executions, which has made it really difficult for states to find CMOs, chief medical officers who are anesthesiologists. But no, there there was an anesthesiologist who was going to inject the drugs last Wednesday. Mm-hmm. So they, they are able to find people. Do you think that it's a smart, if you're against the death penalty in general, you should be against it uh, in the specific. Do you think it's a smart tactic or has it proven to be a useful tactic to campaign against the specific means of execution like one specific drug, um, it, you know, is insufficient or untested. Is that something that will get the death penalty banned overall? Or is that just something that saves an individual life here and there? Yeah, I mean, I guess it depends on what the the person's intention is. I mean, if the death penalty is legal in more than 30 states, I think it is a worthy debate to discuss what the methods are that we're using right now. And I do buy into this argument, you know, that Paul Ray makes in Utah. Okay, this is legal. Why are we whitewashing it? Why are we choosing a method that we don't know how to execute? If the citizens have said, we want this to be legal, then yeah, I think we should be debating how we're going to implement this. And if we're not comfortable implementing it, then maybe it should be outlawed. And by the way, we talked about the three-drug cocktail and fentanyl, but those aren't the only drugs that are under the microscope. I would say the most controversial drug in the country right now when it comes to death penalty, which was in Scott's drug cocktail, is a drug called midazolam. This is a drug that has been included in cocktails that have caused botched executions, people gasping for air, thrashing, clenching fists, you know, really 
obviously struggling in some cases for more than an hour. Scott expected to have those side effects. And I said, so do you care? And he goes, no, I even warned my mom that she should expect this. Um, And he said, I don't care. I want to move forward. I'm not getting off that effing table. Have you thought at all about your role in giving him uh, a megaphone? Yeah, I have. And, you know, I've thought a lot about the victim's families. You know, it can't be easy to see his name pop up, you know, if, if they feel strongly that they that he did it. I think it's important to have this conversation, though, on a national level, because I think that it's uncomfortable. Yeah. And I think that politicians don't want to have it. Right now, the attorney general of Nevada is running for governor. And I think it's an uncomfortable conversation for him to be having. No one's accepted our interview requests at, at that level. But I think we have to force the conversation because there are too many people who are sort of hiding in the corners. And I think we have to address this as a country. It is true that it really complicates the traditional law and order script. You know, I, I killed the bad man. It, in fact, it's just embarrassing for the state overall. And perhaps if you want to read into it, it's it's a moral quandary and it doesn't lead to the sort of uh, emotion that sometimes has propelled politicians into office. Yeah. The kind of bloodlust. It, it complicates the bloodlust of a populace. But I want to get back to this idea about why are we listening to him, which is this. Yeah. When there's an execution, we might talk about justice for the victims and we might talk about taking them off the streets, but it is state, state of Nevada, state of Nevada versus Dozier. So it is what the state is doing. It's not Dozier saying, kill me or Dozier saying, don't kill me. So I wonder in this whole argument, if he's been given too much credence and agency in what his own fate should be. I think it's a really good question. Uh, I don't know the answer. Um, The state of Nevada, I would say this. I think the state of Nevada does not want to implement the death penalty. They have more than 70 men on death row. Many of them have been there for much longer than, than Dozier. And so, yeah, should Scott be able to decide that by law? He's able to. Should he be able to? I don't know. Gianna Taboni is a reporter for Vice. Her special on the execution or planned execution of Scott Dozier will be on HBO on August 3rd, and it's called Waiting to Die. Thank you, Gianna. Thanks, Mike. And now the spiel. This morning, Donald Trump tweeted to Iranian President Rouhani. Now I'm going to do all caps. Never, ever threaten the United States again or you will suffer consequences the likes of which few throughout history have ever suffered before. We are no longer a country that will stand for your demented words of violence and death. Be cautious. Because Donald Trump knows demented words and caution. Let us say that you are President Hassan Rouhani. How do you approach your next move? What's your reaction? Now, I would venture to guess that any other threat by any other president toward any other hostile foreign actor in U.S. history, or at least the last hundred years, you get pretty much the same reactions. Maybe we can hope that the dictator, the bad man, the autocrat would say, oh, now I'm in trouble. But history suggests it's usually the opposite reaction. Noriega, Hussein, Gaddafi, every USSR leader, they get their backs up. They, they scream at underlings. They prepare for war. They pound a table. They say, we're not going to be pushed around like this. These were bellicose men who greeted bellicosity in kind. But this salvo 
On the other hand, maybe the first in U.S. history where a U.S. president puts himself and therefore his country out there in a saber-rattling pose might be the first time it's greeted with something approaching glee. If I were Rouhani, I would savor this. This is an opportunity to bolster his own image internally and internationally. He can improve his standing on the world stage by Donald Trump's spasm. Depending on exactly how he takes the bait, he could show himself to be the better statesman, the cleverer person, the more composed human being. What an opportunity for him. What an opportunity Trump has given him. And of course, what a disservice to America that tweet from Trump was. How does it advance in any way U.S. foreign policy? The United States has not only moral suasion, but economic levers over Iran. When the president goes all caps on an agnostic medium like Twitter, he gives up all his advantages. It's a blunder from a president who only thinks in the near term, thinking, how do I change the subject? How do I distract from my mistakes and my investigations? How to rally my base around me, which is the only question Trump ever asks. Now, let's move to Vladimir Putin and his relationship with Trump. There are some good, learned guesses as to what the real relationship is. Adam Davidson in The New Yorker today quotes a top CIA veteran as saying that Trump's servility was a strong indication that Putin doesn't have Trump in his back pocket. Because if he did, you would expect Trump to go out and show defiance. Instead, we got what I would call a toadying posture, except toads are vertebrates. But even if Putin has nothing more on Trump than smarts and the ability to focus, there is something unbelievable about the summit that I don't think has been widely noted enough. Donald Trump uses meetings with foreign leaders to burnish his own image. The pageantry and pomp of a presidential meeting is always helpful in Trump's eyes, and I think he's right about that. But he doesn't conduct these meetings with allies. He doesn't willingly do so. He has some appointments on the the calendar, and he'll talk to NATO or Theresa May or the G7. But allies don't serve this purpose for him. Because when he meets with an ally, the ally will often say something, you know, mildly critical of Trump. Because the ally knows that Trump's attention and his policies are not always in his country's or her country's best interest. A meeting with Angela Merkel won't necessarily benefit Trump because Angela Merkel doesn't kowtow to Trump. A meeting with Macron does not benefit Trump, because Macron, despite what you may hear publicly, privately loathes Trump, as per Ian Bremmer's reporting. So Trump meets with Kim and with Putin, and he does it to elevate himself. Think about that. Think about the President of the United States drafting off the stature of Kim Jong-un or Vladimir Putin using those guys as a means of elevation. It is astounding. Trump's prestige is so low that it increases by juxtaposition with the world's worst actors. And I'm not talking about Scott Baio, though if you want to take it that way, it also applies. And this is why Trump wants to meet Putin again. Well, I mean, maybe just meeting him in Washington is easier than going about arranging a dead drop. I don't know for sure. But I think it's because Trump believes, and I think he may be right, that the mere fact that he can, on his whim, inhabit a function of the institution of the presidency will help him to look more presidential. And that's why I think the question we need to be asking is this. Can Vladimir Putin risk his reputation? Doesn't Vladimir Putin know his standing will suffer 
from constant visits with Donald Trump. And Trump has summoned Putin to Washington. And Putin has agreed. Won't that make Putin look weak? Listen, I don't know anyone at Sputnik or RT, but if you do, I don't know, maybe you're in with Glenn Greenwald or Larry King. Can you feed them this line of argument? Not only will the argument that Vladimir Putin will lose face by going face to face with Trump, not only will it forestall some further loss of prestige of the United States on the world stage, I actually happen to think it's true. And that's it for today's show that just was produced by Pierre Bienname and Daniel Schrader, who will also be presenters at the Sanitation Expo 2019 held in St. Bart's. Use promo code LANDFILL to get a discount on your room. Steve Lichtai is executive producer of Slate Podcasts. He has agreed to moderate the panel on wastewater treatment solutions at the Sun Valley, Idaho Hilton. They tried to book the Marriott. Sorry to make you slum it. I hope you can focus on treating wastewater. The gist, some spaces are still left for the Lake Como Conference on Dysentery and Gonorrhea. Yes, these two diseases are not even related, but the beauty and allure of Lake Como can surely put a dent in both of them. It's like organizer George Clooney says, come for the dysentery, stay for the gonorrhea at the Lake Como Dysentery and Gonorrhea Conference. Don't dis Goncon. Oomperu de peru du peru, and thanks for listening. <laughs> <laughs>